Welcome to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. I'm your host, Megan McCorkle. This podcast series features conversations with leaders and innovators having a positive impact in our city. Let's get started. Your journey starts here. A new study shows attacks on the Asian American Pacific Islander community have skyrocketed 150% in the first quarter of 2021. This episode of the Free to Be More podcast, we're talking to members of Baltimore Asian Resistance and Solidarity about whether there really is an increase and what action people can take to be allies in combating racism. Hugh Trong, Seema Shah Nelson, and Clarissa Chen from Baltimore Asian Resistance and Solidarity, thank you all so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you for having us. I want to give each of you the opportunity to sort of introduce yourself and your connections to Baltimore and tell us a little bit about BARS. Hugh, why don't you start? Sure. So my name is Hugh Trong. I am a lifelong Marylander and I've actually lived in Baltimore City for about, I was just doing the math before this conversation, about 17 years. So I actually lived here as a child, started elementary school here while my mom was attending school at the University of Maryland at Baltimore. And then I came back to the city in 2008 and have lived here since. I live in Northeast Baltimore with my husband, toddler, and two cats. Perfect. That's great. Clarissa. Hi, I'm Clarissa. I am a Baltimore resident. I live in Mount Vernon and I've lived here for about six years. I originally moved here for college and have stayed to work at a nonprofit and just to be more involved in the community because I I love Baltimore a lot. It's just a great city and I'm happy to be here. Thank you. And Seema? Um, I'm Seema Shaw Nelson. I've been in Baltimore City for going on 10 years. I work for the UMB School of Social Work, and I am placed in as a community school coordinator in a Baltimore City public school. Great. Thank you so much, all three of you, for being with us today. Hugh, if you can tell us a little bit about BARS, what is the organization, and how did you come to be involved in it? Sure. So... BARS was really started during the Asians for Black Lives movement that started up in Ferguson, Missouri in late 2014. And really, during that time period, there's a few folks in Baltimore, particularly connected with BRJA, Baltimore Racial Justice Action, that were coming together and starting to think, like, maybe we should have something like this in Baltimore. Um, They came together and really began a community conversation on February 29th, 2015, actually, among Asian and Pacific Islanders in Baltimore with a similar political mindset. I was fortunate enough to actually be invited to that first conversation. And like so many other sort of community or sort of events such as these, it was sort of very much like a word of mouth. I knew someone who knew someone who knew one of the people who were thinking about doing this. And really the timing, you know, I guess it was just hitting at that right moment. Unfortunately, as we're having these meetings in the winter of 2015, we became more politically active in April 2015 when Baltimore police murdered Freddie Gray and the Baltimore uprising happened. So we're already you know, starting to have conversations and think, you know, maybe we should meet more often. Is this something that would be helpful for Asian Pacific Islanders in Baltimore? And then the uprising happened. We're like, OK, I guess we do need something like this. We do want to participate in something like this. And so since then, we've been having these monthly meetings. And part of that has come out of those initial conversations, where in those initial conversations, one of the things that we had all shared, this group of 
of Asian Pacific Islander Americans in Baltimore is that we realized that we were drawn to bars partly because we had a strong sense of isolation being Asian Pacific Islander people within Baltimore City. So part of it was really grew out of the sense of we needed to know that we weren't alone, not only as Asians and Pacific Islanders in Baltimore, but Asians and Pacific Islanders were really committed to anti-racism and supporting the dismantling of white supremacy. Marissa, tell me how you first got involved in the organization and what it's meant to you personally. Um, Hugh talked about that isolation. Is there something personally that it means to you that there is a group that you can come together with? I initially heard about bars when I was attending Hopkins. A lot of the students and faculty, grad students and community members were rallying against Hopkins starting a private police force. And there were a couple of members of bars that joined in that effort and were very actively organizing. And that was kind of the first glance I got into what BARS does and its political mission. And being someone who is a Taiwanese American and has never lived in a place where there are a lot of other Taiwanese Americans or other Asian Americans really, until I got to Hopkins, which there's a a large population on there, but in Baltimore, there definitely was a sense of, uh, this is a, a group of people that I feel spiritually, politically aligned with. And uh, that made me really excited just to know that this is a place where I feel like I can organize and also unpack my own identity and traumas and things like that. So that is really what drew me to bars. And uh, what keeps me here is just the people and the relationships that we build and uh, the fact that our relationships are just like the building blocks of how we do our organizing in general. Seema, how have you seen this organization grow over the years and what has it meant to you to be involved in it? Um, Well, I came to bars like you and Clarissa, and I think many others, seeking like-minded people who have experienced similar life experiences as me. As as you said, it's isolating in Baltimore City to be Asian. So that was what I was looking for, especially looking for a way of coming together with other Black and brown communities, you know, in solidarity to dismantle white supremacy. Hugh, you've been involved in the group really since the beginning. How has it grown and what has it meant to you to see how much it's grown? That's a great question. Thanks for asking. I think it's really grown in, the obvious thing is in numbers, right? So we we do have a Facebook page. Um, We do have Google Meet and we have been, (laughs) we've had regular meetings over the past now six years, which is a lot, particularly, I think, for those who have been around since the Baltimore uprising. There were a number of community efforts that started up during that time period for lots of different reasons. Some lasted, some haven't. So it really means a lot that we've been able to continue these conversations and build relationships with one another. But what it's really meant to me is that I've gotten to meet so many people I don't think I would have been able to connect with otherwise and learn so much from some of them. Because I think so often in Baltimore, we get kind of stratified in our own social circles, whether that's split up by age, by current life stage, whether we have kids or not have kids, connections from college. So that's been really good. The other thing as well, as I, I do want to touch on this, that we've been able, particularly as progressive Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders, we've been able to learn so much more from one another in each other's life not only life experiences, but what we've learned from whether or not it's involvement in the LGBTQ community, whether it's involvement with national advocacy work, whether it's not its involvement with 
say, the harm reduction movement in the city or other interests. And we've been able to support one another in these efforts, both share and support one another in these efforts. So. The Enoch Pratt Free Library is open for business. Customers can come in to browse the collection and use computers at limited capacity and with health and safety precautions. More details at prattlibrary.org. I do want to sort of go to uh, more current events. Over the past year, there has been a significant increase in hate incidents against the AAPI community. Clarissa, if you can answer this, how has your group been impacted? How have you personally been impacted? And how have you seen things or have you seen things a shift, a change over the past year or year and a half since the pandemic began? I just want to start out by saying that as we've discussed this amongst my friends and also amongst bars, it is very unclear to us whether there's actually a rise in AAPI violence against Asian American Pacific Islanders. And this is because there is often a lot of silence. These things aren't necessarily reported. I think a lot of the incidents we're seeing now just happen to be someone took out their phone camera and took video and that was able to get media attention. And now we're seeing people say, oh, there's so much Asian violence happening or violence against Asian people Mm -hmm. happening. But this didn't just happen. I think all of us as Asian Americans have very real lived experiences of racism whether that's microaggressions or physical violence or all types of things, really. And uh, yeah, we just wanted to make it clear that this wasn't a new thing that came along with COVID. It didn't start with Trump calling COVID a Kung flu or a China virus or anything like that, although that certainly doesn't help. So really, I think what we have turned to is uh, analyzing this problem with the roots of where anti-Asian racism is. And a lot of that is within colonialism and white supremacy. There's a very strong and long history of foreign policy and imperialism. And just a couple examples of these is the encouragement of Chinese and other Asian workers coming to the U.S. in the mid-19th century, and then the Chinese Exclusion Act happening, and then preventing Chinese people and other Asian peoples from being able to immigrate into the U.S. after they were done using Chinese people for their labor of building the railroad, amongst other things. Um, The fact that Guam, for example, is a U.S. military base and a a lot of that native homeland is being taken over by U.S. military. And I think all of this seems like maybe it's distant because it's happening in Asia. It's not happening in the U.S. necessarily, but it really impacts the way that Asian Americans are seen in the U.S. as well. And also a lot of us have families that still live in these areas. We have histories that are intertwined with the Asian continent, whether that be our parents' generation, our own generation grandparents, et cetera, that trauma lives on. And so that that violence hasn't, it's not new and it is not something that has just appeared and it's not something that will just go away either. So we just wanted to say that first and maybe I'll let Hugh and Seema touch on this a little bit as well before we dig into how that's impacted um, our personal lives. Sure, Seema, if you could sort of discuss that history and how, I mean, I think there are a lot of headlines right now and maybe that's because cases are being reported, or as uh, Clarissa mentioned, people are capturing on the cell phone, but that is not necessarily an uptick because there has been so many unreported cases. I think that's exactly right, Megan. I think that Asian Pacific Islanders in this country have always lived under the threat of violence. It's not a new violence. It's an increasing level of violence that we're seeing because we're hearing the language behind it, right? Because what people are saying 
when they're committing these crimes or when they're talking and reporting about these crimes um, ties into what we're all living right now, which is the COVID crisis. Mm-hmm. I think that's why it seems like there's maybe a rise, but there really, I don't know that there is. Hugh, do you feel like the conversation in these headlines that are out there, does it help or is it misleading about how historically this maybe is just something that's being brought to light that isn't necessarily something new? It's something that um, the AAPI population has been living with all along. I think, honestly, the jury on whether or not this is really arises is really out there. I'm not sure if that's something that we'll ever have a clear answer on, to be honest. And that's partly because a lot of the media coverage has been by people who don't have this understanding of the history or are just haven't put it in this larger context. I mean, like Seema, when some of this conversation around the, some of particularly anti-Chinese sentiment that the Trump administration was putting out around COVID as someone who was a young adult around 9-11, to me, it also seemed very reminiscent of the Islamophobia and the, the impacts that had on the South Asian community after 9-11. So to me, it was very clear that this is all part and parcel of the same thing. Of basically, particularly for Asian Pacific Islanders, we are kind of accepted until we definitely aren't. Can I just add, you know, I think it's great that we're starting to have these conversations uh, more now. And I do think that coverage, I mean, this is me personally, like I cannot speak for every like Asian American Pacific Islander, but I do think that an increase in coverage is really important and it's really a good thing. And it's great that we're having these conversations and conversations like the one we're having now. I do think that it's important that we're asking the right questions, right? That we're asking the right questions and examining the whole picture and coming up with answers that address the deeper systemic issues that are coming to light now. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to add too, and even in earlier this winter, when some of this media coverage was coming to light, particularly around Asian elders being assaulted in the Bay Area, in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, there are some local press there that was also starting to raise these questions after talking with Asian American activists and Black activists, particularly in Oakland. They were starting to have some of these questions of, are these really hate crimes or are these really the instances of vulnerable people poor people, people struggling with mental health issues, strike lashing out at other vulnerable people, in this case, each and elder. So this is also something that I think in different places, but also different levels of awareness, they're also having these conversations on whether or not there's really a rise. And I think the conversation really changed, I think, with the Atlanta shootings. I think there's been a pretty uh, significant response to these headlines that have come out. We've had, you know, the governor form a work group. Um, Do you feel like those are steps in the right direction or are they kind of band-aid steps to these headlines that we're seeing rather than looking at the bigger issue? Thank you for that. Um, I don't think they're the right steps. That being said, I think I can see why, for instance, Governor Hogan and his position with his political background would turn immediately to a hate crimes work group or look to the legislation. Um, This is a tricky one. And this is something that I think that I have personally struggled with a bit. For instance, I'll just use this, the hashtag stop Asian hate or stop AAPI hate. Part of my personal frustration is like, well, this issue is anti-Asian racism, which to me goes deeper than hate. 
right? Hate makes it into a very interpersonal conversation of someone basically being mean or hateful to another individual. And what I do really think the deeper conversation is, is how Asians and Pacific Islanders are treated as a community and as individuals who are impacted by that, like by our governments, by larger mainstream culture. So I think some of the deeper solutions that I would like to see go beyond just a one-time work group or hate crimes legislation. And really, you know, what I would like to see is like a more thorough reckoning of how what anti-Asian racism is, what are the impacts of white supremacy on our different communities. And I think partly locally, but also nationally, we as a country haven't done a very good job of that. A lot of times Asians and Pacific Islanders, but particularly Asians in this, I would say in this case, are seen as the quote model minority. And what my understanding based on sort of both policy and history and everything else is that that's actually been an excuse to ignore the needs of our communities, to justify anti-Black racism, right? Because the idea is, well, if Asians are doing well, then why can't Black and Latinx folks and Indigenous folks do just as well if they're not facing discrimination? So sometimes we're used as a bludgeon in that respect, but it also serves to continually under-resource the most vulnerable in our communities, such as some of the women who were killed in the Atlanta shooting in mid-March and continues to get to things like You know, our elders, recently arrived immigrants, don't have access to the public services that they may actually need because there aren't government staff, there aren't people there who can provide resources for them in language. We don't actually fully understand how white supremacy is impacting our various communities because our community is really large. We have the largest income disparity of any other racial group. And when we all assume that we're all doing well, there's a lot of people, particularly those where recently arrived refugees like Burmese folks who are left out of that and don't get the resources that they need. And then finally, I also really want to touch on, we don't, you know, I'm particularly concerned. I think many bars members are very concerned around the immediate response being like, well, we just got to crack down on hate crimes by having a work group and having legislation when particularly with our context and how we're finding around police accountability and supporting Black Lives Matter is really hate crimes legislation is a lot of times a way to provide more funding and generally causes greater scrutiny in our Black and brown neighbors. And we certainly don't want that, particularly in the name of our safety. Yeah, thank you for saying all of that, Hugh. I think you put that in a really excellent way. Um, I think for me, a framing that is really helpful to think of what are the right questions to ask is to think of where is the hurt and where is the cause of that hurt and how can we heal? both individual people and the systems that are hurting us. And I think, for example, the idea of more policing, that doesn't solve the problem of people committing crimes, right? Or quote unquote crimes or hate crimes or anything like that. It doesn't solve the issue of another person harming another person. I think we need to know where harm is happening so that we know where to give those resources to and what resources are appropriate. And that means also being in discussion with the people who are in need of them and have not had access to resources as much. Because like Hugh said, the Asian American community is so vast. And I think another problem that often happens with the discussion of Asian Americans and even the idea of the model minority is they'll uplift examples of East Asian people doing well, but that's not true of all Asian people. There, if we disaggregate our data, we'll see that certain groups of people are doing much worse than others because of the historical traumas that have happened. And uh, that would help us answer some questions of uh, where do we need to give resources to more? Mm -hmm. So I think that is a helpful way to think about it as well. 
just looking at first steps, what in Baltimore City could be a first step? Because when I look at nationally, it just feels too big. When you drill it down to Baltimore City, is it education? Is it looking back at the history and understanding? Is it figuring out where those resources are needed? What would be a first step in the right direction? And this is for anybody. I think, you know, all of those things need to be done, right? And there's people who are good at doing all of those things. And I don't think there's a linear path here where there's a first and a second and a third thing that gets done. I think everything kind of needs to happen together. Um, Everybody in Baltimore City who is working um, towards anti-racism and anti-oppression is doing this work already. Right. Like black lives won't matter until we've stopped Asian hate and stop, we won't stop Asian hate until black lives matter, for example. So, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that there is allied work that is already being done and there is a lot more work that needs to be done. And, you know, I think Asian American Pacific Islanders at every level can be integrated into that work and can mutually benefit from it. The Free to Be More podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library, now introducing the Teen Library of Things. Teens ages 10 to 19 can check out GoPro cameras, coding robots, a Nintendo Switch, and more. All you need is a library card. Details at prattlibrary.org. Are there other local organizations that BARS sort of works hand-in-hand with? Like you said, it's important for groups that are working towards dismantling white supremacy to work together. Are there other groups that BARS works with towards that common goal? And Hugh, maybe you can answer this one. Yeah, you know, I think we have always, I feel like, been trying to sort of build those ongoing relationships. Baltimore Racial Justice Action really comes to mind, as well as Stand Up for Racial Justice, as groups that we have collaborated with in different respects. We've also supported the efforts and the goals of Black-led groups as well, such as Organizing Black, for example, who's leading the push to defund the police by $100 million in the current budgeting process for the city. So those are the ways that we've worked. And those have been the ways that, particularly in issues we've worked. I'll also do want to clarify that really, not just in Baltimore, but Maryland-wide, there isn't particularly an organization that's focused solely on anti-Asian racism, right? Mm -hmm. Even with ours, you know, we started and we're very much in the context of supporting the policy and advocacy goals of other communities of color. And a lot of our our initiatives have been sort of on that end and then supporting each other and building community among ourselves. So in that extent, from my point of view, this is also a space that's new to bars as well as thinking about, okay, how do we advance and advocate and press on anti-Asian racism, partly because in the context of Baltimore City, so much of our work has really been focusing on supporting other Black and Brown communities that it's sort of a tricky question, you know? But that being said, unfortunately, because of this moment, because of this increased conversation, we have been having some more conversations with other emerging Asian American groups in Baltimore City around, you know, having conversations with the mayor's office about this topic as a whole. Mm-hmm. Do you think that there's anything that local officials could be doing or could be doing better to support the community towards these goals? So I'll, I will start off and say that I think 
I, I still return back to this, this issue of language access, right? Um, and that's partly because even though, say, for instance, those of, I believe, none of us on this call are recently arrived Asian immigrants, one of the things that we have been trying to impress upon the mayor's office is the importance of censoring the needs of the most vulnerable in our communities in any efforts they have to addressing anti-Asian racism. And that means our elders, recently arrived immigrants from whichever community they come from, Asian or not, and folks with um, limited English proficiency. So that means making sure that, you know, if you want them to access service or if you want folks in these communities to be comfortable with, say, even reporting a hate crime or reporting issues around civil rights, they need to know that they're able to talk to someone in language and have that resource and actually also know that the staff in government actually understands their issues and, and has some awareness of the cultural and historical and social context in which they're coming from. And I think that's something that we haven't historically done very well in the city, in the state, or in this country. That's a big one. And then the other, the other thing, too, particularly locally, it would be extremely helpful to know if local officials actually understand the historical and social context by which we all have, by we all or our families have come to this country. And the fact that that isn't there is sort of out of a deficit of public education, to be honest, and also a willful ignorance. I would add to that that it's not just like, it's like we all need to learn, right? Like those of us who were born and raised in this country and who went to public schools in this country are also still, you know, have to take the time to discover this whole history, right? Like we can know our family's history, but, you know, the whole history from the 19th century and earlier when, you know, as agents sort of came to this country and the ways in which they contributed and the ways in which they were oppressed and dehumanized. And it's interesting because a lot of times in American schools, that is not something or it's something that you get just a small taste of and then you move on. So you feel like kids don't necessarily learn that when they're growing up, going to school. Exactly. And and just to co-sign with that, I, um, as someone who also is like kind of, who also grew up here too, you also don't see yourself in that history, right? So I, I definitely remember having conversations with my teachers is like, well, what if an Asian person came here? You know, how would have an Asian person been treated under Jim Crow? Or, you know, what if Asian people came over in the mid 18th century? What happens to them? A lot of my teachers are like, well, we don't know. Mm-hmm. And like now as an adult, you know, I have learned on my own that yes, there were actually Chinese immigrants in the Louisiana Delta in the turn of the century who were brought there because they thought we're soon to be cheap labor. Or you know, Angel Island in California. But that's all stuff that I think many of us have had to learn on our own. I also want to pause and also just say, I know I had mentioned that FARS hasn't really done a lot of explicit work focused on anti-Asian racism, but one of the things that I have taken away from participating in FARS is also learning, hearing from, and learning from fellow FARS members of different ethnic backgrounds and different generational backgrounds and learning about their experiences because Seema's right, we only, a lot of times we only know our own family history, but we don't know how our family fits into this larger historical and social context. And I think if Bars does anything, it, it kind of gives us a chance to learn from each other. Mm-hmm. And this is a question for all of you as well. What can people do to be meaningful allies to the AIPI community? What are those action steps? What can people do to have a meaningful allyship? I think when we have discussed this before, something that came up is 
just creating and holding space to acknowledge the harms that have happened to the Asian community, the history that we've discussed, um, and to know that all of that creates painful and oppressive realities for Asian people. And so being able to just say like, this is a real thing and to take time to listen and to take time to help heal a lot of those traumas. I think one positive thing, going back to the point you made earlier, Megan, is it is it harmful or is it helpful that these uh, this is taking a bigger part of the headlines and media attention? And I think one thing that is helpful is the fact that more people are at least recognizing that this is something that exists, right? And so I think not forgetting that after the headlines disappear and also to recognize that there is a lot of harm happening. And so I think just holding space for all of these types of conversations and to know that there is a longer history and uh, we should be acknowledging that on it, not just as like a one-time thing, but in a a continuous manner and to be politically educated um, and socially educated with what is happening. Mm -hmm. I think bars, uh, the group helps a lot with that. If there is someone out there who wants to learn more about bars, what is the best way for them to learn more about your organization? Um, I would say maybe one of the best ways to to find out for about us, if a person does have a Facebook account, is to look at our Facebook page, actually. Um, we have a public Facebook page. We also do have a Facebook community for people who identify as Asian or Pacific Islander. Mm-hmm. So if, if someone is Asian Pacific Islander, they're welcome to join there. Likewise, there is also a Google group, again, that's primarily intended for folks who live in the Baltimore area and are Asian Pacific Islander. Mm-hmm. What are your hopes for the organization moving forward? What do you hope to see for bars in the future? I would say, you know, part of what bars does is, you know, when we build community with each other, right, we build power within that community. And the strength of the Asian American Pacific Islander community in Baltimore City makes Baltimore City a more welcoming place to others. So I think that power building and that that community growing, um, I think that's really the continued work of bars. Well, Seema Shan Nelson, Hugh Trong, Clarissa Chen, all from Baltimore Asian Resistance and Solidarity. Thank you so much for spending the time with us today. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Summer Break Baltimore is coming to the Pratt Library, June 1st to September 4th for all ages. Sign up and get free summer break boxes in June, July, and August filled with books and prizes. Visit the library or attend virtual or outdoor programs and you'll be entered into a weekly prize drawing. More information at prattlibrary.org. I'm Megan McCorkle, and you've been listening to the Free to Be More podcast by the Enoch Pratt Free Library. You can follow the Pratt on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next month for another Free to Be More conversation. Thanks for listening.